you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we put ourselves into your hands. You alone are truly trustworthy, righteous, and just, the stable foundation of our faith. And you are the beginning and the end, the one who makes all things new. Nothing can take your place as Lord. And so we thank you for your faithfulness and your steadfast love. We ask that you comfort and heal those in our body, those that are dealing with physical and uh, health issues. We pray for healing and protection of Casey, who is dealing with a lung condition. We pray for Zane, uh, who has heart conditions as well. We pray for Bud and his health. We lift up Aaron and healing for his injury from his accident and the surgery he went through. We pray for those families, that they be strengthened by you during these difficult times, that they understand your love is sufficient even in times of suffering. Help us, Lord, to know this is true and to have hope in you as we deal with anxiety and depression that surrounds just the many challenges of a pandemic, social distancing, societal instability, and the heartache of injustice. There is much suffering in this world, and we long for your return to set things right. We are thankful for the work that you did on the cross and the resurrection to show us such amazing grace and mercy despite our rebellion against you. May your word that is taught today increase our faith, increase our hope, and increase our love for you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. We're going to be in Mark 13, starting in verse 14. Whether you're at home or here in person, you can go ahead and open to that. We find ourselves in the core body of Mark 13 again this morning, <clears throat> a text that is possibly the most difficult in all of Mark to unpack and understand. And two weeks ago, we set the stage for the chapter and walked away with the knowledge that there are many different interpretations of any eschatological passage, including Mark 13. And so because of that, we need to approach it with humility and kindness and compassion because other brothers and sisters may disagree with us. Uh, as I've said, even within this church, we're going to have a mix of views. And so we need to remember as we get into this this morning again that we can hold different views on the study of eschatology or last things and still fellowship together. Amen? Amen. This is a secondary issue. But I think even within it today, we're going to find a ton of wonderful confirmation of our faith. And then last week, uh, Tyler did a wonderful job reinforcing the fact that the overall point of this chapter isn't about prognosticating the future. It's about giving the saints a certain level of hope, uh, a call to obedience, and a level of endurance. And this is a much-needed message in 2020, and one that we're going to refresh again today. I don't know about you, but uh, the last six months have been hard, right, on many of us. And so hopefully today will be an encouragement to you. Now, as we jump back into this admittedly confusing chapter this morning, um, well, first let me take an informal poll here. How many of you, when you hear eschatology, you're like, oh, I got this down. I totally know it's not confusing at all. Raise your hand. Anybody? Okay. For those of you at home, there is no one raising their hand. How many of you get confused by eschatology? Raise your hand. Uh, almost everyone is raising their hand. Very good. Perhaps some of you at home as well are, are raising your hand. Well, uh, a problem with eschatology and the study of last things and anything prophetic is that oftentimes we approach it with our current context, our current events, our current chaos surrounding us, and we try and see where it is in Scripture because that gives us a sense of hope. But unfortunately, that, that puts us in a bad place sometimes, and we're not able to see what the original author thought. And so I want to begin this morning with a little thought exercise, as if we're cleansing our palate, if you will, uh, of current events and things going on. And so 
As I said, one of the difficulties in reading these passages is that we'll bring our context in. So let's step away from our context. Let's clear away our preconceived context this morning. And I want us to step out of being Americans in the 21st century, and I want us uh, to put ourselves into the mind of an early 16th century English peasant, okay? An early 16th century English peasant. Now, you might think to yourself, why are we doing this? I know it sounds odd, and you're wondering how this connects with Mark 13, but just bear with me for a bit, okay? Hopefully, this will give you some ability to understand where I'm going. If you're a 60, early 16th century peasant, you're a person attempting to survive everyday life. You don't have any of the current events or, or current uh, things that help us move through life. And so you're probably in a trade or you're farming or you're a servant or maybe you're just simply trying to make your house survive. <clears throat> you're getting up at the crack of dawn to start cooking and you don't finish until you fall asleep at night. You're possibly dealing with all of this on top of the fact that you also have to deal with one of the many diseases or pandemics of the day. One of the first internationally recognized flu pandemics had just occurred, and something known only as the sweating sickness. That sounds pleasant, doesn't it? The sweating sickness. Uh, it had just started to come out, and it was leaving the peasantry in complete fear. Basically, you'd wake up sweating one day, and two days later, you'd be dead, right? So pretty nasty stuff. Uh, some evidence also points to the possibility that during this time in the known world of the time, there was what was called a mega drought, which was uh, reducing the amount of food, uh, and so there was also famine. And on top of it all, the political foundations of the known world were becoming unhinged. Does this sound familiar at all? The mid-1520s to mid-1530s was a crazy time to be alive in England. Just under a decade prior, the Protestant Reformation in Germany at the hands of this guy, known as Martin Luther, uh, and others within the Reformation, had resulted in growing violence and chaos on the European mainland. You think we have problems in Portland with rioting, you should have seen the Reformation. To the Papists, or the Catholics, that had long reigned over Europe, Martin Luther was taking the role of, you guessed it, the Antichrist, because he had set himself up as God over the traditions of the church. Meanwhile, back in your country on the island of, uh, of the British Isles in England, a new king named Henry VIII, the guy on the left here, uh, he had taken the throne and reigned for over a decade. He was known to not be able to control his lusts towards women, and so when his first wife was unable to provide him with a male heir, he set his eyes on one of her ladies-in-waiting and decided to slander his wife, potentially even having her killed, and then have this new lady-in-waiting become his new wife. Uh, doesn't sound that great, does it? Well, the papacy of the time, uh, the Pope, Clement VII, there on the right side of the screen, uh, he didn't like this because the papacy had to buy off on every royal wedding in its realm. Otherwise, it wasn't permissible. So Henry, conveniently, had a sudden revelation that he wanted to become a reformer and didn't like Catholicism anymore. He decided to switch sides so that he could have his divorce because the Pope wasn't doing what he wanted. And suddenly, Henry became a reformer, establishing himself as the head, the new Pope, if you will, of the Anglican or English church. Makes our politicians look like saints nowadays, doesn't it? Because the state government and religion were so intermingled by this point, this threw everything into complete chaos. Now, as a peasant, you and I, we most likely can't even read. And since the first copies of the English translation of the Bible had just come out, we don't know what the Bible says for ourselves, so we have to rely upon the king and the priest to tell us what the Bible's talking about. Now, in order to change the state religion and enforce it, the king enlisted the help of one of his advisors, a man by the name of Cromwell, to begin forcing the change. And so all of a sudden, this change hits home because you're starting to see the priests and neighbors you once knew who were strong Catholics being drug out of their homes, thrown in jail, and burned at the stake. Literally burned at the stake. The Catholics in your own neighborhood are now seeing King Henry VIII as, you guessed it, the Antichrist, because he has set himself up as the ultimate authority, even over the Pope. Your friends who are jumping into the Reformation movement are telling you that it's not actually the king, but it's the Pope who's the Antichrist, because he has instituted pagan rituals as requirements for earning salvation. Does this make 2020 sound any better? Right? It's pretty crazy. But then one day, in the midst of all this, you're walking through the streets and you see a young man who is standing on a box preaching vehemently at the crowds. You stand to listen and you find out from someone 
standing nearby that he's a reformer within the Reformation. He doesn't think the Reformation's going far enough. He calls himself an evangelical. And as you listen, he's quoting from the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel about the end of the world and using current events of the early 16th century to say that Jesus is coming back. You hear him say that other prominent figures in the Reformation, brilliant men like John Bale and John Fox, believe the same thing and are preaching the same thing. How many of you ever heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? Anybody? That's John Fox there on the right, John Bale on the left. And they believed that the 16th century was the end of the world, and they were preaching it. They even wrote books about it. Now, to you, as an illiterate peasant who's hearing this stuff and engulfed in chaos, what does it feel like to you, the end of the world? It feels like the end of the world, doesn't it? I mean, for you, being this peasant in England, this does feel like the apocalypse. And it feels good to think that all this craziness may end and a new, more peaceful future is right over the horizon, right? That's normal and natural and okay and good. Okay, now that we've gone through this process and we've made ourselves into this 16th century peasant, let's step back into our 21st century context and ask this question. You ready for question and answer time? That's a question. You ready for question and answer time? Okay. Was 16th century Europe and England specifically experiencing the end of the world? What was that? No, the answer is no. How do we know this? We're still here, right? It's like when you watch the movie Titanic and you're like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen, right? Yes, you do know what's going to happen because you're here, right? So there's no way that the 16th century could have been the end of the world. But this was a time that was so chaotic in the known world that it spawned a huge amount of what's called apocalyptic fervor. Some scholars have classified it as what's called the Tudor apocalypse. Tudor was the name for the English royal dynasty of this time period. Now, before we move on, I have one more question for you guys to answer, okay? Another question and answer time. In all of that description and thought exercise that includes tons about the Antichrist and the end of the world, there was one thing missing. What was missing? And you can give me your best Sunday school answer. Jesus. What was missing? Jesus. Jesus was missing. You see, the apocalypse has become a word that means destruction and the end of the world. But the word does not actually have that focus at all. It actually comes from a Greek word that means revelation. And this word is important because it's the name of the book of Revelation in the earliest manuscripts of the Greek. And the reason for this is that the biblical books were often named by something that was in, within the first line, whether it be Hebrew or Greek. And in the book of, of Revelation, this is what the first line is. It says this, Apocalypsis, Jesu, Christu, the revelation or the revealing of Jesus Christ. Now, because of a movie back, I think, in the 70s called Apocalypse Now about the v Vietnam War and because of apocalyptic predictions, the word apocalypse in most people's uh, mind means destruction and end of the world and death. But you can see very clearly that apocalypse, in its original meaning, only means revealing. Of who? A man named Yeshua, a Hebrew man, who became the Christ, the Messiah, the reigning king. The apocalypse is about that. It's not about the end of the world. The book of Revelation was a revealing, not primarily about future events or how the world would go into chaos, but about the dominion and reign of Jesus that currently in the first century and currently in the 21st century exists over his kingdom and the nations, even when things on earth seem like nothing but evil and chaos. You see how this is pretty pertinent to today? Revelation was written to first century Christians that were dealing with death and persecution and government uprising in the face of following Christ. And so what is interesting to me about what I think personally is errant eschatology versus what I see in the Bible as what I think is true eschatology is that you can usually sniff out errant eschatology because it is more about prognosticating the future than it is about the revelation of Jesus as king. But true eschatology is going to focus on Jesus instead and that reign as king and his work as savior. Amen? Now, what does this have to do with Mark 13? 
Now we're well-versed on a piece of Tudor history, right? But what does this have to do with Mark 13? Well, as I noted two weeks ago, when looking at this section and its parallels in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, many people try and force current events or an end-of-the-world narrative onto these texts. And even if they are indeed true, doing so can lead us astray from the true intention of the original author and focus instead on all the chaos. To sum up what I believe our text today will focus on is not future events or the end of the world past the 21st century, but our section today will focus on this. In Jesus, the world order was forever changed. In Jesus, the world order was forever changed. And by world order, I mean the order of the universe, the cosmos, both physical and spiritual. So let's take this understanding we now have and go to our text in Mark 13 and see what we can unpack, shall we? Let's read from Mark 13, verses 14 through 27. Mark 13, verses 14 through 27. And unfortunately, because of time, I'll have to pause at 27, even though it runs right into the next section, and we'll cover that the next time. In verse 14, Jesus says, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter into his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Look back quickly to the immediate context of this section in verse four. Jesus, in our section we just read, is answering the question from verse four, the question that comes from his four apostles, tell us, Jesus, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? What are the these things that he's talking about? Look at verse two. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings, the temple complex? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is the immediate context. He then speaks of verses 5 through 13, giving them his version of the t-shirt slogan, stay calm and carry on. He basically says, guys, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, uh, famines, all these things, these are just the beginning. They're, they're going to happen, but you shouldn't be disturbed. Suffering, persecution, and tribulation will happen, but don't be confused or lose heart because in the midst of it all, his followers will endure with hope, obedience, and endurance. And Tyler taught us about that last week. But we may have noticed that he hasn't answered the question yet in, in verses 5 through 13. What is the sign that's going to say when the temple will be destroyed? And this is where we begin in verse 14. And the first point that we see this morning is this. Jesus' answer about the temple describes the effect of his coming death and resurrection. Jesus' answer about the temple describes the effect of his coming death and resurrection. And I'll break this down, what I mean by this, in a moment. In this answer that spans from verses 14 to 23, we are going to see one sign and only one sign and then two warnings. One sign and two warnings. First, we see in verse 14 the one sign, the abomination of desolation. Or should I say, the abomination of desolation, right? The abomination of desolation. Now, how many of you use that phrase often in your homes? When your kids spill something, that milk spill is an abomination of desolation. Does anyone use that? Any parents out here? No? Okay. So what does it mean? We don't really use that. In all honesty, we could unpack this historical and scriptural, uh, the implications of this uh, for hours. 
But in our extremely condensed time today, even though I'm probably going to go a little bit long, uh, let me give you the basics. To Jesus' original audience, the four apostles that he was speaking to, this would have had huge historic implications. They would have understood what abomination of desolation means. But to the original audience hearing the gospel of Mark for the first time in the first century, they were most likely a Roman audience, and they would have had to gain additional historic understanding, thus the parenthetical statement, let the reader understand. Remember here that the reader isn't like you and me who read it for our daily devotion. The reader is the person who's speaking it before the church and teaching them. So he, would have need, he or she would have needed to stop and pause and fill in the Roman audience what was going on here. And so let me help fill you in because we all, myself included, are outside of this context. For the Jews, the historical understanding goes back to a passage in Daniel 12, 11, okay? In Daniel 12, 11, it says this, and from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, if you've grown up in any kind of a prophetic church, you know, they focus in on the numbers and we got to pay attention to the 1290 here. Don't do that right now. Just let that go and we'll deal with that when we get to, uh, to Daniel uh, after we go through the book of Mark. Focus in on the fact that this is where it comes from. But this alone doesn't give us much because there are so many possibilities of what Daniel might be saying here. So we need to look at the historical context of what happened in Israel to help us. And for that, we need to look to a book that many of us Protestants are unfamiliar with called the book of First Maccabees. How many of you ever heard of that before? Okay, First Maccabees. Now, before you run screaming from the building thinking that we're becoming a Catholic church because First Maccabees is in the Catholic canon, uh, we're not doing that. We're just looking at this not for inspired truth of who Jesus is, but for historical implications and context, like we would look at Josephus, who wasn't a believer, okay? So this is from 1 Maccabees, chapter 1, verses 20 through 24. It says, After subduing Egypt, Antiochus returned in the 143rd year. He went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, and all its utensils. He took also the table for the bread of the presence, the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, and the gold decoration on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. He took the silver and the gold and the costly vessels. He took also the hidden treasures that he found. Taking them all, he went into his own land. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. Now, it goes on in 1 Maccabees to use that exact same phrase in the original language that speaks to an abomination that makes desolate. And that's why I share that with you. Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, as he was known, the name was translated God Manifest or God Incarnate. He was truly a version of Antichrist, okay? Uh, Jesus is God Incarnate, not Antiochus Epiphanes. But this man was king of an empire called the Seleucid Empire, which was one of the four regions that came about after Alexander the Great died and the Greek Empire was split up into four different regions. This was his empire there on the screen, that big, broad, dark area there. And he had come into Israel to conquer it. And he wanted to enforce worship of the Greek gods. And so to do so, he set up an altar to Zeus in the middle of the Holy of Holies in the temple of Yahweh and performed an animal sacrifice to Zeus. Now, in the Jewish mind, this was the prototype and definition of the abomination of desolation and the fulfillment of what Daniel was talking about. And Jesus is saying, when he's using this same phrase, he's saying, you need to look for something very similar to this. In other words, when you see an invading pagan army that wants to destroy the way of the worship of the Jews and possibly overtake and destroy the temple, you know that the temple is going to be destroyed. It's about time. Luke helps us here because in Luke's rendering of this same section of the gospel, Luke used similar sources to write his gospel, but he adds this interesting enhancement. He says in Luke 21, 20 through 21, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And then he continues on with similar language to what Mark said. In other words, this is your sign, okay? Sounds like a bad Jeff Foxworthy joke. Okay, when you see a Roman army coming to Israel, here's your sign, all right? This is what's going on here. And so in the Jewish mind, this was what they would have interpreted. 
This one sign in coming days, apostles, Jesus was saying, when you see pagan Gentiles surrounding the city desiring to destroy the temple, it's time to heed the warnings I'm about to give you and run for the hills for safety from the ensuing destruction and judgment. And then he gives warning number one, seen in verse 19. Okay, so we've got the one sign. Now we're going to go into the first warning. Here's his warning. is going to be super bad, so run. That's his warning. Okay, that's verse 19. This is what it says. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Now, people who interpret this with what's called literal interpretation, they'll say this has to be speaking about the future and the end of the world that's past the 21st century because we've never had a tribulation that's so bad that we could label it as this. But guys, the problem with that is that this isn't meant to be read literally. It's apocalyptic language in an apocalyptic genre. And so we need to use the proper interpretative tool uh, to, to read it. So let's look at the nuance. This sentence is uh, not used to, uh, for futuristic. It's used for understanding how big it's going to be. It's not for comparison. It's for how bad it's going to be. You see, the language is used elsewhere in Scripture. Let me show you a couple. Here's Exodus 10:14, speaking of the plagues. The locusts came over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. Now, you can go read in the newspaper right now in Africa, an entire section of the continent, not just Egypt, has intense locusts, which those folks may argue with this passage. But this passage wasn't saying it's the worst it's ever going to be. It's saying it's bad. Okay, here's another one. Exodus 11.6, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Okay, here's another one. This is from Joel 2.2, and this is speaking about armies, an army, okay? A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Now, guys, while the Babylonians were pretty terrible and they were a horrific army, I would pretty much guess that our army could defeat them, as could the million-man army of China, right? We have more war weapons. I, I doubt that God was sitting up in heaven going, when the nuclear, first nuclear weapon went off, going, oh, no, that's not true, because I said in Joel 2.2 that the greatest that there had ever been, it had already happened. No, guys, this isn't meant to be comparative. It's meant to say it's going to be bad. That's how this language is used. What the authors of these sections and the author of Mark are doing is using what's called hyperbolic language or exaggerative language, exaggeratory language to say this is going to be horrific and you don't want to be around for it. And to be fair, 40 years later in 70 AD, when the surrounding armies of Rome led by the general Titus came to destroy the temple and sack the capital of Jerusalem, there were few things in the Jewish mind that could be imagined that could be worse. The temple was destroyed and 2,000 years later, it still, still sits destroyed. The final destruction of the temple and the exile of all the Jews of Israel across the world would have been the worst thing that had ever happened and would ever happen. But the point is not just uh, the, the, the severity, but rather it's even more than that. It's about something that cracks the cosmos, or in our language of today, that's earth-shattering, right? Right? Now, you would never, ever think literally that the earth has literally shattered when you say, wow, that was earth shattering. So you can see hyperbolic language being used. But Jesus didn't want them to be concerned. What he was telling them was a change to the world order, the order of the cosmos is going to happen, but you're going to be okay because you're mine. Jesus didn't want them to be concerned. So look at what he says in verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, again, to read that literally is to say everybody would have died. This must be talking about the end of the world. But the very next section is, oh, and there's going to be people that are going to be saying, hey, look, there's the Christ. Hey, look, there's the Christ. So obviously it's not talking about the end of the world, okay? So what is actually happening here then if it's not talking about the end of the world? Well, Jesus, in not wanting them to be concerned, is saying, guys, there's a limitation to how bad it'll get. It's going to be terrible, run for the hills, but there's going to be a limitation, He's saying God's people will be saved using remnant language. 
The Christian historian Eusebius writes a few hundred years later that this did occur during 70 AD. The Christians, because of this uh, oracle, if you will, largely fled Jerusalem when the Roman armies surrounded the city. And for the most part, the Christian community was protected because they heeded Jesus' words. But the Jews, who didn't think he was the Messiah, stayed and they fought. So in warning number one, Jesus says, this will be really bad, but don't fear because a remnant will be saved. But then in verses 21 through 23, Jesus gives warning number two. And because we're short on time this morning, I'll summarize it this way. Jesus basically says in verses 21 through 23, don't buy in to the craziness of all that is going on around you. You have been told what is true, and that should keep you strong in the midst of hope, obedience, and endurance. The Jewish historian Josephus says that during this time of the Jewish war, there were those that convinced many Jews that they were to fight the Romans and that this was going to be their salvation and it was going to usher in the messianic realm. So much so that they stayed in the temple courts fighting the Roman soldiers until the Roman soldiers inadvertently set the temple on fire. It then burned all of the gold in the temple that was remaining down into the cracks of the stones And in order to get at that gold, the Roman soldiers were ordered to go and tip over every stone so that not one stone laid upon another. Does this sound familiar? It's from verse 4 and verse 2. The Jewish faithful were massacred because they were looking at false messianic calls while the Christians largely escaped. Here are some artistic renderings uh, and depictions of that invasion in 70 AD. Does this look pretty terrible? Pretty bad run for the hills. There's Jesus's warning. But then Jesus moves on from the one sign and the two warnings to describe the content of what this cosmos cracking or this earth-shattering event was going to be. And he, <clears throat> he had touched on it in uh, warning number one in verse 19, but he's going to go on now in verses 24 through 27 to tell us what it is. And this is my next big point this morning. This is what he's saying. In denying Jesus as king, Israel was bringing judgment on their temple system. In denying Jesus as king, Israel was bringing judgment on their temple system. To the four apostles in Mark 13, Jesus would have been speaking futuristically. To us, we look at it historically. This all happened in the first century. Verse 24 through 27 are packed full of Old Testament imagery that tell us exactly what Jesus was communicating. People who have a futurist view, which I disagree with, will look at verses 24 through 27 and say, oh, we got to look for the sun and the moon and the stars. We got to pay attention to when Jesus comes in the clouds and that's going to be the second coming of Jesus. That's going to be the end of the world. But what I would submit to you as I'm going to show you here is that's not what this is saying at all. But people who are stuck in that kind of futuristic view, this is why you'll hear every time there's a blood red moon, oh, it's about the end of the world. Every time a new century hits, oh, it's the end of the world. They're constantly looking for signs in these verses that are not intended to be signs. Verses 24 through 25 is using Old Testament apocalyptic language. And remember, this is not given as a sign of when the temple will be destroyed, but in parallel to help the disciples understand what the destruction of the temple means and what the destruction of the sacrificial system means in the cosmic level. Remember that apocalyptic does not mean destruction or end of the world. It means revealing. And so this language is used elsewhere in the Bible and here to describe the unveiling of God's providential hand in drastically altering the geopolitical and thus spiritual makeup of the worldly system. What these verses are going to tell us is that after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the then coming destruction of the temple would cement the fact that Jesus was revealed as the Messiah, upending the current order, including the Old Covenant. This kind of imagery, even from verses 24 and 25 there, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, it's found all over the Bible in apocalyptic language. Let me give you some examples. Here's Ezekiel 32, 6 through 8. It starts out, I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood. Now guys, physically, logically, is that possible? If you killed every human being on the planet and captured all of their blood, would it reach to the tops of the mountains? Question and answer, guys. No, No, it wouldn't, okay? So he's being purposefully hyperbolic here, all right? 
and the ravines will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. This speaks of when the king of Egypt was being conquered, okay? This is Isaiah 13, 9 through 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its risings, and the moon will not shed its light. This speaks of the kingdom of Babylon being overturned. This is Amos 8, 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And this speaks of the coming judgment upon unrighteous Israel and the changing order. This is where Jesus is actually pulling from in verses 24 and 25. Similar language in Mark 13 is therefore not to be taken literally, but apocalyptically. That something big, something cosmos cracking, something earth shattering is going on with this guy named Jesus. Well, what is it? Verse 26 should be on repeat for us because it's the answer. What's the cosmos cracking thing? Look at verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You guys should be so used to this because we've gone over it so much in Mark. This is from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. One of Daniel's visions was, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a heavenly vision where the Ancient of Days and Grand Order gives, order gives all universal authority as king to the one known as the Son of Man. Who's that person? Jesus. You see, the story of mankind, guys, is that we were given power in our original parents, Adam and Eve. And we were given authority under the reign of the creator God, but due to our own sinful, rebellious natures, humanity gave that authority over to the adversary of God in the kingdom of chaos. And that's been reigning ever since on this planet. We chose to no longer take our rightful place as subjects to the universal king. But the gospel message of the Bible is that through the offspring of Abraham, a virgin birth, uh, a virgin gave birth to a baby that was God incarnate, come in the flesh, who then ministered to us to show us the character and reign of God. He then died to pay the price for your sin and for mine and resurrected to prove the overwhelming power and authority and victory of the creator God. And then he took his rightful place as the king of God's kingdom and poured out his spirit onto mankind that all who are his will be brought into his kingdom as adopted sons and daughters, as his citizens under his reign. This, dear friends, is the fullness of the gospel. In Mark 13, Jesus is giving an understanding to the disciples about what will happen after his death, resurrection, and ascension occurs. At the cross and through the resurrection, which are coming in Mark 15 and 16, the old order of rebellion, the old order of nations warring against God, the old order of the sacrificial system, and the old order of the temple will be destroyed and done away with. They will be judged as no longer necessary and invalid. Now, in the new covenant, Jesus can do this because he had provided himself as the perfect sacrifice, so there's no more need for sacrifice. He had provided himself as the bodily glory and presence of God, so there's no more need for a place for the Shekinah glory of God to dwell. And he also didn't need a temple because he had created, by his work of the gospel, he had created the church, which is the inaugura inauguration of a kingdom of men and women who are being built into a new temple, a new touch point between heaven and earth. And we act as that in so much as we use our grace-purchased citizenship to show our obedience to the law of love and our pursuit of righteousness, holiness, and justice. And by the work of Jesus, all authority and rebellion against God was conquered, and the kingdom of God now reigns. To the Jews that believed in Jesus at the resurrection, they believed and they were okay, but to those that did not believe and figured him simply another failed leader, whose body had been stolen from his tomb, they would need a more direct judgment that all, his, all of this, his death and resurrection, had occurred and proven true. They would need a sign that showed we have a new God in town. And what a providential hand of God the Father that he would raise up his Messiah within 40 years of destroying the old covenant 
an old sacrificial system. See, this is what makes it easy when you talk to a Jewish person who's wondering about the Messiah. They say, we are lost because we don't have a sacrifice. And we say, yeah, you do. We are lost because we don't have a temple. Well, actually, you can be part of it. It's called the church, the body of Christ. Well, we don't have a Messiah. We're still waiting for him. Well, he already came. You know how that was shown, guys? The destruction of an entire temple and sacrificial system. God literally put his foot on it and said, this is no more, follow my son. And this is all that Jesus is foretelling to those disciples. And this makes tons of sense because just move forward into Mark 14. Turn the page there, if you will, to Mark 14, 58, where he's standing in trial before the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There before the Sanhedrin, they say and charge him with, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now Jesus was talking about his body, but isn't it interesting that the charge they were saying is, it's sacrilege to say you'll destroy the temple. The temple can never be destroyed. That's the place of God. But look at his response there in 1462, just a little bit later. He says, I am the son of man. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, guys, it doesn't make any sense that Jesus in 33 AD was speaking of how he would be, uh, how, how it, would, it would come to pass that these leaders would see that he is right. If he was saying, wait until the end of time when I come the second time, and then you'll finally see my vengeance. What was he talking about? No, he's saying, you're going to see that I am the authority when I destroy the very system that you run. This is Mark 14, 62. Jesus was letting them know that his vindication would come and they would know when it happened because their authority would be removed. Just as Babylon had acted as an instrument to bring divine wrath upon Judah, Rome would be an instrument of divine wrath upon the temple, the religious system, and Israel not even 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. And guys, as we'll see next time, this makes even better sense because Jesus will continue. Just look forward to me, uh, with me to verse 30. Okay, notice what it says there. Truly I say to you, this generation, these folks sitting right now, will not pass away until all these things take place. As I'll talk about next week, to have a futuristic view that this is all talking about the end of the world, you have to do the biggest game of eschatological twister and gymnastics uh, that I've ever seen, right? And I'll show you what that means uh, next week. And guys, I used to teach in that view, but it's funny to me that that view says, read everything in the Bible literally, but when it comes to verse 30, it says, don't read that literally. What is a literal reading of verse 30? The generation that's hearing Jesus talk won't die before all this takes place. How could that be? It happened 40 years later. Does that make sense? The result would be that the old covenant and Israel's rebellious idolatry against it would be done away with and the new covenant would be brought in. And because of this, Jesus would begin to gather his citizens from the four corners of the earth. And I immediately think of Paul's word to the church at Philippi in Philippians 3, 20 through 21. You can see it up there on the screen. Notice what he says. He says, our citizenship, dear brothers and sisters, is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Notice how Paul's view is, all that already happened. He's already king. The kingdom's already here. We're literally waiting for the ability to fully recognize it. In other words, Jesus' second coming is the fallout of what's already occurred in the first century. We'll talk about that more next week. So dear brothers and sisters, this cosmos-cracking, earth-shattering event called the good news of Jesus Christ was evidenced and proven by the destruction of the temple and the sacrificial system in 70 AD. This proven enthronement and inauguration of the kingdom of God, bringing us into it as well as we're purchased by the blood of Christ to be its citizens, this should give us immense hope and strength when we see chaos reigning around us. It has already been proven, not only by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but by the complete removal of the sacrificial system with Jesus in its place, that we already exist in the kingdom of God 
and its fullness is just yet to be realized. But we can know and be at peace that we are the Lord's, and no matter what chaos around us happens, it's going to be okay. This is what we celebrate on Sundays as we gather. The gospel and the truth that Jesus reigns. Amen? And so our third point today and the closing point is this. In spite of the chaos around us, we celebrate the reign of the kingdom of God. As we sit in this time where so many of us are exhausted by the suffering, the anger, and the chaos around us, we need to hear what I believe to be the author's original intent for this section of Mark. While there is a call in Mark 13 to look to the second return of Christ, and we're going to show that in verses 32 through 37 next week, the section we looked at today and the majority of Mark 13 is for a different purpose. It's to remind us of the fact that in the gospel, Jesus has changed once and for all the future of mankind, the future of this world, and the future of us, we who are called his elect. By his blood-bought salvation and his gracious sacrifice, you and I have been given a gift that cannot be crushed. You and I have been given an identity that cannot be taken away. It cannot be confused. And you and I have been given a hope that can never be uh, taken and pulled into something that says Jesus isn't real or this chaos will overcome you. No matter what our external circumstances tell us, that hope cannot be taken away. No matter what our physical or mental health tells us is real, no matter the wars that rage within us or around us, the Bible calls us and Mark 13 calls us to have faith, dear brothers and sisters. The kingdom of God has been proven victorious. The old is out. The new is here. Our hope is not in something that will not satisfy. It's not in some event in the distant future where then we'll finally be happy. You know that that never works when we say, then we'll finally be happy. But it's to sit firmly in the truth that Jesus is king and all other systems and authorities that rage against him will fall. It's just a matter of time. Jesus Christ spoke to his disciples of a massive sign that proved he was the final prophet, that proved he was God incarnate, that proved he was the ultimate authority, and that proved that he was king over all principalities and all nations. Don't let the truth slip away because we are blinded by the chaos around us in 2020. In verse 23, he says, but be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Jesus has assured us we're going to be okay, dear brothers and sisters, because he reigns. And because of this truth that is based in historical fact that we can look up and read and know happened, we know that we are following the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will never be removed from his throne. Next week, I will show you more verses in 28 through 31 that I believe solidify what I've taught you today. And we'll look at what I believe does refer to the second coming of Christ in the next verses, 32 through 37. But for today, let's take hold of the truth that even in suffering, Christ has brought us into a kingdom that cannot be moved. So what is your application today, dear brothers and sisters? Stand firm in the faith, my beloved. Stand firm in the faith, my beloved. Whenever the chaos around you calls you to buy into it and to fall because of it, go back to the word of God. Go back to the fact that you are a son or a daughter of the Most High King and stand firm in faith, my beloved. No matter what you're facing right now, no matter it be medical issues that seem insurmountable, no matter it be losing a job or seeing the chaos around us or the riots in Portland, Right now, where we're at, seek his face, enter his rest, and worship his reign with the knowledge that just as he was proven true in the events of 70 AD, he will be proven true when he comes again and makes a final stand as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. With this truth ringing in our ears, I want to finish by rereading Paul's words. I know I've gone a little bit long here, but if you turn with me to Ephesians 1, verse 16. I want you to reread and hear Paul's words to the Ephesians. And what you'll hear behind his words 
is this truth and understanding that the kingdom of God was already in place, that Jesus had already been proven the authority over all, and that because of that, we can be purchased by his blood into his kingdom to be his citizens, by his grace, through faith. So let's take a look there at Ephesians 1.16, and then we'll step into communion. Paul says to the church at Ephesus in the first century, and he says to us today at Mission Fellowship, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and, there's that word, apocalypsis, revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Okay, what is the hope? Guess what? We're not going to read about the rapture now. We're going to read about Jesus as king. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. It sounds like that Daniel 7 passage, doesn't it? And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put, past tense, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you, dear brothers and sisters, were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Dear brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 